podcast from clippingchains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? James McAfee needs no introduction, at least in the United Kingdom. His approach to bold on-site climbing, particularly free solos, is unparalleled. He's repeated the hardest sport climb in Wales, Big Bang, 9A, sent Britain's hardest sea cliff, Dave McLeod's The Long Hope Direct, E107A, and made the first ascent of the Meltdown, a 9A slab in the slate quarries of his home in North Wales. It was a Johnny Dawes project abandoned for almost 30 years. And now he's written a book. But unlike many books released by elite climbers, this is not an autobiographical account of hard climbs in the face of relative adversity. Calf, as he prefers to be called, has written a fictional account of Larry, a young woman amongst the slate quarries of North Wales who, in the aftermath of a family suicide, takes aim at British politicians who push for austerity and the conditions that led to such suffering. This conversation was really a gift. I can see even through all that rage that James is brimming with humanity. He really is. He has a very warm heart. He cares for people, I can tell. It's a trait that's sometimes in short supply these days, right? So I hope you'll enjoy this one as much as I did. But before we get into it, I've got a couple of administrative tasks. I want to thank my latest subscriber over at Buy Me a Coffee, and that's Alexander. And I want to remind you again that this podcast relies on almost entirely on donations. So that if you are enjoying this show, you can help support this platform at Buy Me a Coffee. You can pay as little as a dollar a month or a one-time donation of $5 to keep the lights on here. And you'll find the link in your show notes. You'll find a link on the website, and if you can help out there, I really appreciate it. Also, I want to remind you that James' book and website can be found in the show notes, so if you're interested in this story, we talk a lot about this book in this interview, you can go find that there either on Amazon or on his website. Get a copy, see what it's all about. I really want to hand it to James for taking this leap, writing a fictional novel something that's not really done in the climbing world. So this is a really interesting take, and I'm excited to host this conversation. So let's get into it with old calf, James McAfee. Calf. James, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? Yeah, no, good. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. So we're not sitting in the same room. Where are you joining me from? I'm from um, Cummerglow, a little village in North Wales. Uh, it's in the United Kingdom. Yeah, can uh, you spell that for the folks who don't have any? Because when you said that the other day, I was like, where? What, what is this place? Yeah, so it's, it's Welsh, the language, yeah. and it's three words, C-W-M, cum, mm-hmm. and then separate word Y, and then separate word G-L-O, so Cummerglow. Yeah, I thought a lot about where to take this discussion to start off. And you have, because you've written this book and you talked a lot about your youth and a lot of things in your life come from this, a lot of things in this book come from periods in your life. I was kind of dying to know a little bit more about this Welsh rave scene of your youth. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, it it wasn't actually my youth. I I, I had a bit of a (laughs) midlife crisis. Oh, really? So this is more recently? Yeah, no, it's like when I was younger, I wasn't into parties at all. But yeah, in my mid-30s, 
um, I did get very into techno music and well, techno and trance. And yeah, I mean, I guess North Wales and Sheffield, particularly um, the city in, in the middle of England, they're uh, obviously got a lot of climbers in them. And a lot of the climbers are keen on DJing. So there's quite a big party scene, um, you know, in North Wales and, and in Sheffield. And there's climbers like Bob Hickish and people who have organised a lot of different parties throughout the UK. And the, within the Slate Quarries, which is a um, you know old, um, you know, very large quarry on the side of Lady Bower, a three thousand foot face, I guess they've been running the odd party for years. And yeah, during the pandemic, I bought a generator <laughs> when I was bored. You know, I was just obviously just in lockdown. I thought, right, you know, I've lots of friends DJ and we've got a lot of equipment. If I have a power source, then I would be able to set up parties. Uh, wherever I like, with a load of good friends. Um, so yeah, after at the end of the pandemic, I set up one in in the Slate Quarries. I had to clean out this barn; it was full of goat shit. It took me <laughs> quite a while to clean it out, but when I cleaned it out, we had this amazing party. Like you know, just 100, 150 friends. Um, you know, quite you know, really good. And I had seven different friends DJing until about seven a.m. Uh, just all night, and it was it was just an amazing party. You know, but I had a really good time. Uh, so yeah, you know, when you're up on the dance floor with loads of good friends, a pretty powerful feeling. You have a really good time. Um, so yeah, that that's a little bit about the, the you know the, the rave scene in North Wales. But yeah, I'm surprised how many friends and climbers, uh, you know, good DJs, and enjoy getting lost in music. Sure, sure. So is this the party where you thought you had this like dead guy on the floor? Or I did. So yeah, party? well, I've run four. <laughs> So I only intend to run one, but I get generous. And, and it is, you know, I say, because it's been so good, I've kind of run more. But yeah, one of them did get out of hand. Too many people came. And um, and yeah, at the end of it, you know, it was daylight outside by this point. Now I'm, I'm pretty tired. I'm like ready for, you know, um, tidying up and, and going home to bed. Uh, but yeah, there's a guy on the floor sat there with a, he had a blue mouth and grey goo eyes. Like, I've never seen anybody look more dead. And I just prodded him saying you know are you okay and then he, he did move and move outside and eventually eventually did make his way out of the uh out of the place running this party but but i you know it was very nervous you know it's quite frightening i would have said um sure you know because you're in these parties you want people to have a good time but obviously you know there are a lot of randoms who come to these parties as well and what what the guy had done in terms of drugs or whatever i've no idea because I've, I've never seen <laughs> i've never seen anybody look more dead <laughs> like it's basically blue mouth, you know, you're losing oxygen, right. cyanosis. Um, so yeah, that you know, there's a bit of a dark side to some of these parties, you know, that some people just kind of looking for oblivion, I guess. So how do these things not get busted? Because in America, I, I could see, you know, some neighbor would hear this, cops would be on the scene, and like, you know, you'd get like an hour out of it, and everyone would be running into the hills. How do yeah, you guys guess, get away with this? Well, I guess we're in a quite a rural area. I guess the venue okay. we use is very soundproof, and also. I'm a fairly covert operator, you know, so you know, <laughs> the, the gear, to, you know, you need like two people on each speaker. You need two, you know, two to four speakers. It takes quite a lot of work. So you need lots of different people. But I do it, you know, we, we go in by dark. We're not starting till 11 p.m. And it's very soundproof, the building that we're using. And out in the woods, you know, like 20-minute walk. So so it'd be quite hard to shut okay. down. They're quite hard to find, quite hard to shut down. Uh, and then we, we we mop up and everything's we're like ghosts, you know. We, <laughs> as soon as it's daylight, <laughs> it's like we're it hiking happened, out yeah. with the gear. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
No, that, that's, you know, I've always heard a lot about the UK rave scene and we have it here in America to some degree, like in the bigger urban areas, New York, LA, that sort of thing happens. But I, you know, I've never been, you know, and I certainly used to be into live music and certainly into a party scene to some degree in my kind of college years, but I never really stumbled into one of these or into that world. So I'm always a little curious about it. Um, I mean, so you, you said you had like a bit of a midlife crisis. How old are you now? You're like 42, 43? I'm 42, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I, I split up with my long-term partner. I used, I used to have a fantastic partner. You know, I was going out with her for 10 years, uh, Sophie. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did have a crisis. You know, I guess I've become a bit estranged from Sophie, even though she's a remarkable, extraordinary woman, brilliant woman. Uh-huh. But anyway, we, we broke up and it's some of the usual kind of stuff, you know, stuff through work and finances or whatever that were involved. But anyway, broke broke up. And then, yeah, for, for the year after that, I was, uh, I would think, fair to say, very lost. Um, and But like I say, I was lost, but various friends were organizing these these big parties within the UK, like some in beautiful valleys in the Lake District, um, you know, some in random caves on the south coast of the UK. Um, so I got involved a little bit in these these parties um for, for right or for wrong you know sure, um, sure but the music the music i do love you know the former music not all of it but yeah sort of melodic techno uh does uh, yeah, it does get me excited sometimes <laughs> sure no i understand and you it also comes across to me that you have a clear affinity for the land and, and the people of wales mm. and i think it's fair to say to an american audience I don't think that Americans know a ton about Wales. I mean, we know a little bit about the UK in general, um, you know, England, Scotland, Ireland, and all that. But Wales, I, I think, always gets this kind of like mm, uh, shoulder shrug that we don't really know a whole lot about it. So tell me a bit more about this place and what it means to you. Okay, yeah. So w- Wales, for, for Americans, Wales is obviously a bit sticks out left, out west on the map. It's uh-huh. got its own language, and it's a very old language, and it's a very hard language, I would have said. It's a very beautiful language. Uh, but yeah, I live in the northwest West End in a county called Gwynedd, which is a, a stronghold for the Welsh language. Um, and, you know, and then the Mabinogion, you know, in fact, Mabinogion is like a really old stories, like, you know, just like probably you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And Gwynedd gets mentioned in, in these old stories quite a lot. And, um, and I think for single pitch, to, you know, and, and sort of, multi, you know, Two pitch trad. It's some of the best trad in the world. It's got mm-hmm. very beautiful beaches, beautiful mountains in Uriri, also known as Snowdonia. Uh, vast history with the climbs, things like Dream of White Horses by Ed Drummond, The Quarrymen by Johnny Dawes, if anyone's seen Stone Monkey. Um, and it's very centralized around kind of uh, Clan Berris, uh, you know, this, this beautiful valley that's got um, loads of good climbs in. So you know, the North Wales area has a, a ton of yeah fantastic landscapes and and climbs and really good community for across generations really. And then you know, four hours drive south, you've got the, some of the best sea cliff climbing on the world in Pembrokeshire. Uh, and also, it's a very socialist country. So you know, the, the Welsh politician Anurin Bevin he helped set up the NHS, the National Health Service, mm-hmm. um, and partly you know so. Wales is full of old quarrying and mining communities, you know, so slate quarries and copper mines in the north and coal coal mining in the south. And, you know, if somebody got injured back in the day, and you're talking 1830s was the heyday of the um, slate quarries, and it was very important having some sort of welfare and that would be, you know, within their their kind of community, their little community would chip in to look after the injured person and their families, 
you know, when they weren't able to work in the quarry anymore. Um, and so the NHS is like a bigger form of that. So it was a Welshman who helped set that up. And and later, and it's always been strongly Labour. You know, the Tories, the Conservatives have never done well in Wales at all, uh, pretty much. So yeah, it's got a strong sense of, of socialism. And, and just, yeah, it's, it's a real magic place. There's a movie out coming out called Adra that Kuldaus did. And, it, you know, it's got lots of aerial footage of, of the area, some of the climbs and some of the history of, of, of climbing through the years um, with, with various different people. So, yeah, that's worth keeping an eye out for. And you've always been strongly driven by that history, correct? Yeah, I think the history of climbs means, uh, you know, that I, I love, I'm a, a bit of a guidebook geek. The guidebooks are probably one of the most precious things that I own. I love looking in the back at the histories and what went on with, you know, some of the new routes and some of the characters who put up the routes. So, yeah, certainly from the 1949 to 51, there was a proper purple patch in UK climber by a guy called Joe Brown, who's a plumber from Manchester, and he put up loads of really hard routes. You know, um, you know, I know that they're not that hard nowadays, but if you had the same gear as him, it would be mm-hmm. really hard. And he's, you know, he just went non-site, he loads these um, routes. Yeah, that sort of history I do, I do love. And then another route in 1930, yeah, around 1930, and there's an E1, the grade in the UK, E15A, about 510A. But, uh, you know, this guy, Jack Longland, did it in 1930, 1930, 1931. And I can't believe it. You know what I mean? Because it's so hard to do it with in like a pair of or really bad footwear that he did it in. Really <laughs> remarkable for the time. Oh, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing, kind of how you got into climbing briefly. I know you've shared these stories before, so you don't have to recreate the wheel, but... Yeah, no, I got taken out when I was young by my dad with my sister, okay. but I didn't like it. I think I cried, you know, so it was probably six years old <laughs> okay. I went out and the climbing wasn't for me, you know, but the, and then I became a chav, you know, I was out just, uh, that stands for council housed and violent, and, but not, not quite like that, but, you know, just hanging out, nicking stuff and being a, a bit of a townie. And dad, dad, but dad did climb and he, he used to bike down the Borodale Valley where we live and go climbing. And I just thought he was nuts and worse than his life. You know, why would you go <laughs> down this valley to, you climb on bits of rock um but then yeah i went to the climbing wall like the movement and got him to take me up a route called Troutdale pinnacle uh, kind of five pitch severe in Borodale, and we did that and and pretty soon i, I got totally hooked and I, then i was down that valley uh you know almost every day and i, I quickly got into soloing because a friend failed to meet me at a, a crag and obviously back in the day you didn't have mobile phones mm. uh, you know, it's a very different world rurally so it's hard to find partners so I set off up a route called Spin Up, a VS, or yeah, five eight, and um, and it felt weird at first, but and then I was going at five nine. So before long, I, most of my climbing was without a rope, so it was really good for, you know, I knew it was really good for developing endurance technique and um, and a good head game. So yeah, that was the kind of uh, you know being brought up in the lakes. And my, yeah, my dad built footpaths for the National Trust, so he had a pretty tough job, quite a lab, labor style job on them, but in a beautiful place in the mountains. Mm. and worked in a stationary shop. So did you feel that, I mean, obviously much has been said about the kind of British or UK style of climbing, the boldness of it. Did you feel like given the history of all those climbers in the region, the styles they climbed in, did you feel a strong pull to be more bold in your own climbing? Because you've obviously done many bold things. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, there was, yeah, within the the lakes, you know, there was a a, a very bold climber called Dave Burkett who's put a lot of hard routes up in the lakes, but also, People like Pete Willens, he'd put up routes. Um, I mean, he, he would have been one of the one of the best bull climbers in the world. Nobody would have heard of him, 
but he's still alive and lives in the lakes. But he put up a load of roots around that kind of E6 mark and he used to, he only had a swammy belt. So, you know, like a, a belt just around the waist, mm, not, not God. leg loops. <laughs> and he used to climb with a fag in his mouth and just be out, do outrageously serious roots. Like what he wrote, called them life in the fast lane that gets E6 now and incantations, you know, uh, so you had these, yeah, and you know, and I'd be following the footsteps. I'd be doing his climbs, and his climbs always had a certain element of, of danger about them. Do you know what I mean? It's, you you need, needed a really strong head game, and, and Pete Wilson's roots, particularly, those, those are the ones that I sought after a little bit. They're often big lines, you know, bold lines um, that you, you wanted to kind of go after. And same with, and I guess because I was doing a lot of soloing, then it, it, the, the dangerous routes suited me really well because they didn't, often didn't feel that serious. <laughs> You know, because sure, sure, um, yeah. you know, once you kind of once you solo in a multi pitch, imagine uh, five eleven, then the the dangerous some of the dangerous bits on they're, they're often a lot more dangerous than a lot of five thirteens. Do you know what I mean? Like bold uh, run out five thirteen, it it might not be you know the, if it's even if it's really see, you know quite bold, it might be relatively safe in comparison with the moves you know, the, the moves you solo in on a five eleven A or that sort of thing. It's certainly on a bigger crag. Well, do the translation for me because I've always, I'm like most Americans, thoroughly lost, with, not thoroughly lost, but mostly lost with the British grading system. So, what do you think is like the hardest grade you've climbed unroped? Uh, unroped. So, yeah, well, I only, I only ever climb mainly on site, so without any check checking stuff. Yeah, I did. Well, um, yeah, I did. I did repeat some routes, but mainly on site stuff. So up to about five twelve a, on on bigger bigger routes. Five twelve a on site solo. Yeah, and, no, and well, cool. when I was younger, I, I doubt. Yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone in the UK had done any any more soloing than me in the mountains, just because that. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. You know, in like I guess in the Lake District in Wales, used to do do uh, yeah, just an awful lot of soloing. Really good head for it. I, I mean, I, I don't have that head nowadays. I'm pretty useless at it now. Yeah, I was going to say, have you softened on this? I mean, do you. I have softened. I guess I did a big day in the Lake District uh, uh, just under a decade ago, but it, that was a push. You know, my head had changed a lot then even. Um, so basically, the decade that I was started climbing, that, you know, I had a fantastic head and I absolutely loved, you know, just going out on my own, doing as many routes as I could, you know, in the, in the beautiful Lake District or Wales. And, um, but, you know, as I've gotten older, I, I have lost the head. So I can still go out and do easier routes but uh, in the mountains. But the, the zest for doing, you know, slightly you know, stuff that I could still find very easy indeed, but I, I wouldn't enjoy it anymore. You know, uh, just, yeah, the, the head isn't quite there for it. What do you think changes that? Uh, well, for me, oh, you know, I guess, I, I'm not sure. I guess it, fe- it feels like being a bit of an old guy at a rave. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You, kinda, <laughs> you feel that you've done, you've done your time, and I guess your just risk assessments are very different from when you're younger. You know, yeah. you know when you're in your early 20s, and late teens. I mean, that, that's partly why your insurance is high on your car for your boat. <laughs> you know, you've just got you've got an, an aura of confidence and invincibility about you, where where you, you just you feel you can't put a foot wrong, and that sure. it just doesn't matter what happens. Whereas as you got older, the beat the Beatles are right. You know, you're kind of uh, not as confident, <laughs> not as confident as the ones who was got there. Um, yeah, so I, I can do it, but you know, it'd be a bit more forced. I don't feel like it. Oh, I'm not judging you. I've been a phenomenal wuss my entire climbing career. I've never been known for boldness, that's for sure. So, but I'm also an American, and we don't. And I'm from a different era of climbing, which we can talk a bit about as well. Because how old obviously are you? that's ch- so. I am actually 
I'm about 39 going on 40. All right, you're youth. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't start climbing until, you know, in my late 20s. So this was only, you know, 10 or 13 years ago. Um, It just, you know, I don't, especially in America, that was not really an encouraged scene. Like no one was going out. I mean, certainly there's people like Alex Honnold who do big free solos, but, you know, I don't really see a whole lot of that. And it certainly wasn't like the old uh, hard grit scene in the UK or anything like that, you know. Yeah, we just—they just didn't exist here, at least not that I've seen. Not to the degree, you know, you guys have had it over there in the past, at least. Now, do you think that whole scene is softening, or is it just you and your age and your perceived risk, or are people just generally not climbing like that, even in the UK? No, they are. I mean, but it's—it's gone more the way of headpoints, so you know, where people work routes, which is—it's you know, it's relatively safe headpointing. You know, very rarely has somebody got injured on a hard headpoint. Uh, because you know you know what's coming up you've, you've plenty of time to risk assess it you can choose the day that you're going to be um going for it but um yeah i, I guess yeah hard i guess on sighting it's it's probably has lessened a bit on the on the trad front there's not not quite as many people i would have said going out wanting to do it as mm-hmm. as there was in like the 80s you know in the 80s and 90s and a lot of the classic hard trad routes would have quite a lot of people on trying them yeah, that's kind of what I think of as like that golden era of like really scary, bold climbing in in your part of the world is kind of 80s, 90s. Now, maybe that's my misconception, but that seems like the heyday of that stuff. No, it was. I mean, yeah, Jerry Moffat's got a good podcast. Sure. He said in the 80s, you know, it was all about the danger. Max, yeah. you, you wanted to go out and do the most dangerous routes that you could. And they they put up, you know, the likes of him, Johnny Dawes, they put up some outrageously dangerous routes, you know, just almost very hard to justify them. You know, routes like Masters Wall, Indian Face, um, you know, some, some of these routes just so so incredibly dangerous and stuff down the Clint Peninsula you know, on loose rock where, um, you know, it's a bit like, you know, almost like going out into no man's land on some of these routes. With, sure. You know, bad gear. It's quite steep, loose rock, uh, you know, where you, yeah, it would be easy to uh, come a crocker <laughs> on some of these routes that they're putting <laughs> up in here. It's like... Yeah, and you had quite the adventure on the Masters Wall. I know that it's probably been covered to a great degree in the UK. It was covered on the Climbing Gold podcast here in the US, um, where you had this, you know, I don't know, pretty exceptional experience of having to get off this thing when you realized you were maybe in over your head in that moment. Um, do you have any other stories like that? Anything that kind of comes to mind is like, wow, you know, that was a little close. No, that that was the nearest miss. You know, when, when I was okay. soloing, when I was soloing was younger, I had lots of near misses you know you, you know when you're young and a bit stupid you, you know you're going out doing these big routes that are a bit wet and um pushing the boat out um and you know when i was younger i did i had a pretty yeah i was a bit out there mentality you know when you, you sometimes want to climb into desperation to see to see how deep you can dig <laughs> for your performance so you see if you can make it through that sort of thing whereas it's the opposite of you know, how i am nowadays um we have I, I guess i did deck out on lundy so I've, I've i managed to bloody hit the ground a couple of times the last five years just twice oh, really both of near miss here so one I, I slipped off a route which on a quite a good old but uh, anyway i slipped off uh the gear ripped and and a quick draw and clipped back from the wires i got a bit unlucky but anyway i hit the deck from 20 foot onto a rock platform in pembroke and i i thought i'd shunt in my left side of my body up uh, you know, because I landed straight legged on my left leg, and all the shock went straight into like the ball joint, and everything went to bulk there. I shot, shot my pelvis. How I got away with it, I'll never know. I did have to have crutches for a couple of weeks, so. And another one on Lundy, I was with Georgia Town, and it had been bad weather, 
there was a route in extreme rock that I wanted to do called controlled burning, but part of it, part of it had fallen down. And I didn't realize how much harder it was. It was quite a bit harder. Anyway, I, I, put, I, you know, I was near the start, but I had a, a low runner in that looked, looked okay. And then a, a hull snapped and then that runner blew. And I'd given Georgia the helmet because hers was broken. Um, and I, I arrived, you know, she pulled me out of these boulders a bit back and uh, my back was spasming and then uh, in pain. And she said, you've got a head cut, you've got a head cut. And I put my hand on my head. My hair started coming out with blood out the middle of my head and uh, another clump. And, you know, you think your fingers are going to go inside your head. And then my arms started to lock up. And then and she gets she gets she's, she gets into the meditation position beneath the crag and starts meditating, wow. and I'm right I'm writhing around on the ground, <laughs> trying for like fifteen minutes, trying to work out my back's broken or not. And then I um and basically so I'd fallen backwards through these boulders and uh, basically a sharp granite block had tomahawked a load of hair off the top of my head and just put a little groove of you know which with a bit of blood in it off oh the top God. of my head. I managed to hike out of the slope, but but it looked bad. But the wrist ended up being the worst thing. So yeah, that that was a real near miss. But it all happened really fast. Uh, but yeah, it took six months my wrist to regain strength. So did she start meditating and help you? She did, did eventually <laughs> hike hike up the slope to, to follow me up. Yeah. Yeah, I find this fascinating. You've obviously done a lot of very uh, I don't know. You're you're a really good climber. You climb hard things. You climb bold things. And Hazel Finley actually even called you the best trad climber in the UK, especially at onsighting. And you know, as an American, again, when we think of UK climbers that are kind of household names, I think it's fair to say that your name would not be there. But I don't think it's because you haven't done the very impressive things. So why are you not considered a household name, at least in this country? Um, well, that's very kind of his. I mean, I guess yeah, various times of the last twenty years. You know, I've um, you know been going well, and I would have been, um, yeah, doing doing a lot of hard trad in the UK. Uh, but yeah, when I was younger, I was pretty shy and you know not big into publicity. And also on sighting, so I would have on sighted a lot of E7s. I'd be blown away if anyone's done half as many <laughs> E6s and E7s. And as a brave statement, but ju- just because of how much I did when sure. I was younger. Um, and the fact is, on sighting E6 and E7s doesn't get you any publicity because mm. they're not very big grades, you know. So head pointing E9s uh, will get you, you know, and E9s and E10s and E11s will get you more publicity than on sighting E7s and E8s, by and large. Um, and also, you know, it's quite UK centric. So within the UK, you know, a lot of people know me, and a lot of a sure. lot of peers, I guess, you. Um, yeah, know know what I've done within climbing. But yeah, I'm not. I'm like so. I've kind of not as uh, shy as I once was. You know, I go out with like Ray, Ray Woods, a friend and a photographer. And uh, nowadays, because I've done a lot of existing routes, and I'm, I'm keen on doing new routes, and happy to get pictures on, on that sort of stuff. To, you know, because some some people might want to go and repeat it. Um, and also, you know, because I'm, I'm kind of, you know, now I'm getting old. <laughs> Try to make the most of my end years. You know. Sure. I mean, did you not ever think that, hey, if I, you know, towed a photographer around with me or do whatever to help publicize my name, that I could live off this? I could be a professional climber. I could kind of have that glory. Did that not appeal to you? Or? It did. So that, that epic on Master's Wall uh, was a kick in the teeth. I kind of, but, really? you know, so, but Master's Wall originally got E7, 
But I went back and repeated it in 2018, going the way Jerry Moffat went. And I'm pretty convinced it's E9 where he went. So I got stuffed a little bit by the guidebook and the cloudiness okay. of history. Um, but anyway, I, it just, uh, you know, I, I nearly stopped climbing from that incident. It was, you know, it, it's hard to s- describe how epic, <laughs> how epic it was. But um, can you briefly tell, like, you don't have to rehash the whole story, but for fo- for those who don't know that story, can you briefly tell us what happened there? He, yeah, so I was climbing pretty well in 2000, you know, on site a few routes of E7. So I thought Masters Wall gets E7, it, suit, it would suit my style, it's going to be technical and bold. And um, so I set off on it and I got high and I didn't find a critical runner low down like or a third high or whatever, like a sideways rock six, because because it doesn't really exist, it's a, it's a really poor runner. But anyway, so I threw a skyhook on, climbed above it, did a few hard sequences above it and got to these crimp edges and then I managed to get a my right foot on these crimp edges. So I had a little side pull with my right hand and some crystal, a crystal crimp on my left. And I ended up changing position and it quickly became evident that I couldn't climb up, I couldn't climb right, and I couldn't climb, yeah, I certainly couldn't climb <laughs> down. So I had to drop, so I had to untie and drop my ropes to my friend and he went round, but he didn't know the crag and it's quite a big, biggish crag. So it took him a long time to reach me. And I, I, I thought I was dead, like uh, for the last half hour, I, I, you know, no next no strength left uh most fingertips bleeding you know been changed in position i'd thrown my rack off um but i, I just thought i was brown bread and eventually <laughs> it, it got on the it lowered the ropes down a meter and a half and I, I to my right and i thought i can't fuck i'm gonna die with with that rope in sight and eventually managed to pull it back up and chuck it across me and i, I managed to get a slippery hitching and fell like 50 or 60 foot down right into a route called vember slithered down the ropes we just left the kit there and uh, it was just a mess <laughs> and Adam, my friend was a mess as well so you were able to stand like on these little crimps and untie your knot like one-handed or something and just drop it and you're just sitting there no yeah i grabbed the rope and just fucking hewn some sort of shit shit hitching yeah it wasn't <laughs> a very good hitch that, that's why i swung miles and oh fell miles God. but it was like um but you know because I, I went back and you know, obviously checked out on a Grigory a few times, a few you know, many years later, after after done the Indian face, and uh, and the position is a tricky position, you know what I mean? It's not an easy. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, yeah. The the thought gives me the total fear now, hmm. you know, to be, uh, yeah, that looking back at a, a dense, stupid, 18, 19 year old kid stuck on that fucking wall. <laughs> but yeah, and the, but like I say, when I when I repeated it, I thought it was E nine. I thought it was a lot harder than it got graded. Um, and did you headpointed it this time? Yeah, did no, I headpointed yeah. it. I knew it okay. well, but I, and I knew it was hard than it was graded. Before, you know, when I played around the Grigory, and then when I led it, I read Jerry Moffat's account and about how close to death he was on it, and he was climbing really well, mm-hmm. soloing big mountain E fours and fives. Um, and he'd worked it. I knew it. You know, people told me he worked it quite a lot. And he nearly, and he he got to these edges where I was stood, and he thought about lowering off a sky hook. And you know, so these edges where I was stood on for hours, that's where he thought about lowering off a sky hook. And I read his account after, and after I led it, and my friend who was a good climber, he fell off second me on it. And I thought, yeah, it's as hard as Indian face. You know, it's um, similar level. Um, oh, so it changed. It changed British climbing history for me. Uh, you know, when when I did that climb. No, and it's an impressive effort. And I'm I'm actually really impressed that you kind of, you know, quote unquote, came back to the scene of the crime and got it done. 
you know, how many years later? Was it like 18, 16 it was years it, later? It was 18 years, yeah. yeah. I only did it because it's in extreme rock. <laughs> in so you had to get that done. Well, yeah, and also and also because I thought, well, it's not going to be that hard. But then when I led it, I realized how much harder, you know, I just thought, oh, everyone everyone who said they've done it, they've, they've took off, they've done this lower traverse. You know, so they haven't done it the way Jerry Moffat did it. Because the fact is, a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of climbers who basically aren't as good as Jerry, you know, kind of did it and said it was all right, whereas Jerry Moffat nearly died. You know what I mean? Like, I knew Summit didn't quite play ball with um, you know, people's descriptions of what they did. And that's, that's kind of the cloudiness of some climbing history. So, yeah, when you had this big epic on it, that's the year 2000, correct? Yeah. Do you think that, did it embarrass you? To have to bail like that, or to have this? Uh, yeah, experience? I guess. Yeah, I was. I was young, and a, you know, young people are a bit more. Uh, you know, they they feel shame and embarrassment a bit more. But also, I just felt a bit of a prune. You know, the fact is, you know, you're sponsored climbing. You're going to go out and do bold, dangerous stuff. Um, you know, that that's kind of the name of the game. <laughs> you right. know, certainly with the UK climate at the time. And I just thought you know, you've got to start questioning the reasons that you're you're doing it for. I, t- I took a step back at that point, you know, um, you know, for quite a few years, you know. So I was still sponsored a little bit, but quite, quite informal kind of, you know, relaxed, spon- you know, bit of gear here and there, sure. sort of thing. I mean, were people critical of you? I know that scene could be very. It was in America too. Could be very critical of others. You know, it's a little bit of a posturing kind of world in those days. Yeah, I mean, it, I th- yeah, I, d- I don't know. I guess um, yeah, so, some people would have been critical, but you. Know, yeah, nowadays I, I certainly wouldn't care. Do you know what I mean? Get, when you get older, you, you feel less shame and you just less kind of give less of a shit about what people think. So, but at the time, then yeah, I might I might have been a bit you know, nervous about what people thought, just being young and stuff. Uh, but yeah, it, it did make me a bit more calculated. because you know, at the time I was a bit of a bull. You know, I would just <laughs> go, I just I'd kind of just set off, and it'd be all systems upward progress more often than not. You know, with with little thought. You know, I'd be saw the knee big e4s between the rain and just just doing quite incredibly dangerous stuff looking back you know not on a regular basis it was just week in week out doing quite dangerous stuff uh so you know a kick in the teeth that i just got away with was, was it might have saved my life um at that point because you know i had some wild ideas of, you know about this stuff that i wanted to do yeah and so one thing we're kind of weaving towards it that I've been really fascinated with and I've seen it, you know, as time's gone on and the ch- times have changed, we've kind of shifted to a different world of how we promote ourselves and we're kind of our social standing and our hierarchy in the world. Um, we kind of had this conversation offline about modesty and I thought it was really fascinating. And I've always sensed this difference again, now maybe this is just a dumb American view of the world, but the UK always had, I don't know, a little bit more of a preservation of modesty than I've seen in the U S in maybe the last decade or so. Does that hold up? to you okay it holds up generationally i think okay. i think because i think the generation who didn't have social media and the modesty is still there but i think social media um as, as i mentioned to you has been a, a bit of a shotgun to the head of modesty uh, <laughs> a, a lot of the time you know it's not not all the time but I, certainly um you know i think as a means of self-promotion you know that it, it can be a bit much if that makes sense and i guess i guess for sponsored climbers imagine you know, sponsored climbers you know, then the the people who are giving them kit will want them seen in their kits so then there's you know, 
I guess it's, um, you know, and then pushing themselves in their kit on the social media on a regular basis or posting, you know, regular updates you know, about themselves on a regular basis. So it is, it is the kind of death of modesty in its own way. Sure. Certainly, because I, I had a contract, uh, I, I had a sponsorship contract with Acterix once, and it was quite, I, I found it um, a little bit anal, I've got to say. Or, you know, they, they wanted like a certain amount of posts. They weren't fussed about quality. It was just like number of posts that you did on social media. And I mm-hmm. was like, well, you know, I only write a blog after I've maybe done, done a good trip or something, do like a trip report. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to, I didn't want to be like biffing stuff out willy nilly, but yeah. So I guess it's where um, marketing meets climbing. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I've struggled actually to get a lot of high performing athletes on this show because what I want to talk to them about is not necessarily about their climbing and their achievements, which is always interesting. But I think other podcasts do that better than me. But I'm more interested in their background lives and their financial lives and um, a lot of things that they're honestly not able to even talk about. I've tried, and a lot of these people are contractually obligated in a way that they cannot discuss these sort of um, these sort of things that I find very fascinating, and it's just completely off-limit to them based on their contract. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, a bit as well, I mean, I get the vibe. I mean, and this this isn't maybe well-researched, but, you know, a lot of the people, certainly who I know in the UK, come across a bit trustafarian, so they're, kind of, <laughs> they're already quite well off. And then, you know, mountain equipment or uh rab or whatever you know they just give them a bit more money to support them but a lot of the people i know rich enough to retire already (laughs) do you know they don't need this additional sponsorship um yeah how did you grow up by the way so uh, uh, what what do you mean by how (laughs) yeah yeah that's maybe too vague like in terms of your means like did you grow up from a wealthy family or did you not no yeah so yeah, I'd say mum worked in a stationery shop, dad worked in a um, building footpaths. But yeah, I would have mm-hmm. said we were pretty poor, like um, certainly one of the poorer families in Keswick. Um, you know, we had a, we rented the house. We didn't have any spare cash, sometimes in debt. And certainly, I mean, I had a nickname in school that I didn't particularly like in primary school called Tramp. We'd go Tramp, 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I was in old clothes. And like, um, and it was, you know, like I say, there was a lot of love, you know, I had, yeah, mum and dad were great, but but we were poor. My sister said we're poor, James, when I was younger. And so, like, yeah, like, so I guess for me, when I see a lot of the, um, let's say, a lot of these sponsored athletes who have pretty wealthy backgrounds, it just, um, it, it just seemed from a different world, a bit like Rishi Sunak and everyone, you know, they're, they're just from such a different world of wealth. Because mm-hmm. if you're in rented accommodation and, um, and in debt or poor, um, and the, then you're, you're often hundreds to thousands of times poorer than a family who owns a house and uh, has any sort of savings <laughs> in mm-hmm. terms of wealth difference. Um, so, yeah, I, I do find, no offence to you, not directing at anybody, I, I do find a lot of the um, sponsored athletes slightly spoiled. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> how, yeah. How they come across to me. No, absolutely. I mean, I think... Americans would recognize that to some degree as well. We don't tend to see too many narratives of people coming from, yeah, poor backgrounds and make it in climbing because of their sponsorships. It's often the latter that maybe they got good at climbing because, you know, their parents got them into expensive youth programs or things like this that people could not afford and could not get that ball rolling early in their lives to be, you know, great climbers by the time they're, you know, in their late teens or 20s. Now, you were different, obviously, because you were just out on the rock constantly. You didn't necessarily need the climbing gym to be good no, at climbing, right? 
no, but uh, yeah, it, it, I did have an interesting element in my mindset because I knew it was poor. So a lot of contemporaries, like friends who were good climbers, they, I knew they were massively low, more loaded than me. And that if I had an accident, it could really affect my, um, mm. I knew it could really affect my means of making, make, you know, making some sort of living, you know, via any form of work. But I, I said to, I told myself I would never let my background uh, stop me committing to a dangerous climb. Sure. sure. <laughs> so I fucking, so I had that in the back, you know, so it's a good, quite a dangerous fucking mindset on top of all this. <laughs> Not fucking backing off, you know, just because, um, you know, so I, yeah, so when I was younger, I had a good head for um, for committing. Yeah, and you sent me the, I don't know if, you can tell me if you don't want to talk about this. No, no, go for it. But you sent me this uh, blog post you wrote on your personal website that you've now since taken down. Oh, the rap blog. The rap blog. <laughs> hey, that's quite famous among some British Okay, climbers. is it? Is okay, it? yeah, no, no. No, it's good to talk about that. Yeah, so, all right. So, uh, so like I say, so I, I, when I was younger, I was quite shy, not in a sponsorship, but in my latter years, you know, I climbed like Big Bang, the hardest sport route in Wales, and, and the meltdown, the hardest slab in, in the UK in 2011 2012 and was going well and then um you know saw a load of 100 extremes in lakes so thought you know getting back into it let less worried about publicity and i managed to get the odd financial contract within climbing you know for, for a little bit of money you know you probably t- you know, and at one point second about a, a third of my, third of the income and my friend emma twyford was also getting sponsored by the same brand called rab and um and yeah that was it, in, it so in 2016 i had one of the best years ever in UK climbing. So on site two E8, uh, or the Gotti 8 at the time, like Sky Wall and uh, mm. the Great Escape. So these are routes, you know, the other other pro climbs have gone on head pointed. But you know, I went on sighted them, did the two hardest um trad routes in North Wales at the time, like uh, in the Clamberis Pass, like uh, House of Talons and and um Dark Religion and lots lots of other new routes, lots of publicity. And I thought great, you know, the sponsors are going to be really happy. And anyway, the, the rab turfed me off, <laughs> me and Emma Twyford. Um, you know, and Emma was the first, this was before she'd done 9A, but she became the first British woman to climb 9A. And um, and anyway, some so I, I didn't, yeah, I thought, all right. And they kept some of the friends on who, who were literally rich enough to retire now. And one of whom had just literally nearly just done lots of mourning for a year about being a little bit injured. Not, they're not that interested in climbing, more interested about other activities. And I thought, all right, fuck you, fuck you guys. And um, some somebody had a go at me on a forum. Some guy, uh, I can't remember his name. He had a go at me saying, oh, just captain doesn't get social media. Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that that triggered me. And I thought, right, I am going to do something about this. And I'd, I'd had it in mind that, I, you know, and I, so I wrote that blog and put it out there. And at the end of this blog, so let's say, because Emma, Emma got treated very badly indeed by the marketing manager at RAB. And uh, so that combined with them um, basically giving me the finger, I thought, right, I, you know, it, it was just, there's a bit of Machiavellian in me. And uh, yeah, at the, the end of the blog, I brought Niall's, um, Niall's story. Uh, Niall Grimer told this story at BMC AGM uh, with, with Nick Colton in the crown and Rab Carrington, who set up Rab the company. But he said, you know, Nick Colton and Alex McIntyre, that gone up onto the Grand Jurassic, done the Colton McIntyre route, the hardest route in the Alps. And Nick gets down to Chamonix and he's desperate to get laid. But he's going around you know, all the brothels in Chamonix saying, I've not got any money, but you know, I'm just in the hardest route in the Alps, really want to get laid. And um, the last brothel he arrives and the, the prostitute uh, points 
the uh, tattoos out on each thigh and says, if you can name me who these tattoos are on my thighs, I will give you what you want. And Nick's scratching his chin going, I don't know who the two on the side are, but the one in the middle is Rab. Wow. <laughs> and the, um, and yeah, apparently the crowd at the AGM, like Rab was in the crowd, the jaw just dropped. I mean, only Niall could get away with this. He's a really funny comedian, uh, Irish guy who, who I used to work with. I love Niall. Um, but anyway, I got this in and I think I got my points across that, you know, Rab, Rab did treat Emma really badly they, and they, um, they were just a bit shit with me. And they, they said the guy I called a cyber wanker as well. Just because I got the feeling that these people who are on forums think that they're that they're impervious to they can insult people on some forum with a little gang of friends on a forum, and that you know that they're not going to get a bit of comeback on it. And I wanted to let them know that there was going to be a little comeback from me. So uh, yeah, and like I say, I wrote that, and Emma Emma said that um, I didn't actually go far enough. <laughs> um, you know, so so it's clear that her dealings with rab were fucking bad and it, and it right put me off the yeah, sponsorship in general i just thought um just because you know when you, you've gone to some effort you know to get a bit more publicity and um and yeah i just thought i you know it's kind of a bit pointless just because the, the fact is the let's say the more it, sponsoring spoiled kids <laughs> they are sponsoring people who go climbing so this is why you get the uh, Dark Lord reputation over there? I guess, uh, yeah, the Dark Lord. Now, Dark Lord <laughs> Jack Geldard gave me that nickname. And when I was, you know, and when he gave me it, I don't think I deserved it. But I can tell you now that at various points of the last few years, I have deserved that name. Okay. Yeah, I, whenever they've been through slightly darker patches in my life, you know, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe been struggling a little bit more. <laughs> and I think I'd kind of settled into that name a bit too much. But I'd like to leave that dark lord name behind okay I'll, I'll leave it behind um yeah i just i came across that the other day i was like so is this why he gets this reputation anyway um <laughs> but you did have a, it's a leo holding quote in here i actually thought it was really good and he's also kind of known for shying a bit from the limelight if you think that's accurate <laughs> and um he, he you, you you wrote here that he once said the modest man goes hungry and I actually really like that. I mean, it's a simple kind of idea that kind of resonates with me in that in the world, we don't, I don't think we get a representative view of thoughts and opinions. We get the view and thoughts and opinions of those who are less modest and who are out there, you know, kind of shouting it from the rooftops, right? You're more shameless, yeah. And it is a good quote because the fact is, if you read business books as well, people who demand more generally get more. Mm -hmm. and, and But also, basically, if you're from a more wealthier background, that generally imbues you with more confidence to ask for more <laughs> as True. well. True. Um, so certainly when I was younger, you know, I, didn't, I was aspirationless. I had no money and, and didn't, didn't want, to, want to ask for anything either, you know. Uh, but yeah, to be fair, I was clueless when I was younger <laughs> as well. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, so you decided to not fully pursue this kind of fully professional climbing life. I mean, maybe you toyed with the idea, maybe attempted it, but doesn't resonate with who you are, where you want to be in life. So how have you balanced like the idea of financial security with this high level climbing? Uh, I wouldn't have said I, um, I, I'm not somebody who has generally looked five years ahead and gone, right, this is where I want to be in five years time. I've mm. kind of fallen into things, but, but I have landed on my feet quite a lot within life. And now uh, when you said I didn't, um, didn't want to, uh, you know, become a professional climber, 
one of my regrets is that I didn't, you know, in my, in my early 20s, I could have soloed some quite hard routes if I decided to work them, but I thought it was a bit lame working routes and then soloing them. And also, I didn't want to advocate soloing either because I think, you know, if you go around soloing and some kids see a picture and think that's a cool thing to do and he goes out and dies or they go out and die, and then sure. there is a there is a kind of bit of responsibility, you know, uh, that you are advocating soloing and then somebody goes off and dies doing it. So, um but anyway, uh, I, I, so I didn't get into that. But I, I landed on my feet with working at Plaza Brennan. I've worked there for seven years, and you know it was quite reasonably well paid. You know, it's, it's like instructor. It's National Mountain Centre in Wales, but we're dealing with adults who want to be there on generally personal and professional development courses so that they can lead groups on rock climbs or or mountain walking, like MLs, where you go out at night and having for a couple of nights. So I worked there for seven years, and I worked five years freelancing and a bit of professional climbing. Uh, like again doing mountain leader trainings and assessments and then I, I got the best job I ever had at the BMC uh, as their youth and partnership and then their youth and equity officer so I worked there for seven years and that was a fantastic time there was a really good team of people there so Nick Colton was my boss he was a super guy and Kate Anwell's head of HR and then my friend Hannah who's my main drinking partner Niall <laughs> Grimes and then Alex Messenger who was head of marketing and it was just it was very good for me on a personal level, it made me much more employable. You know, I was running a just massive program of work, you know, from setting up outdoor programs, climbing programs for young people, you know, getting instructors to run that for them, you know, running things like mental health conferences, mental health webinars, equity symposiums, and whatever the equity steering group wanted the BMC to do to reduce barriers to participation to underrepresented groups. And I would action their their desires or try to. And, um, you know, it's very varied work and, uh, I, and I was good at it. <laughs> you know, you ran lots of different events. Um, so it's a fantastic time in that seven years. It was the best job I've ever had. It'll probably be, you know, it might, it might be one of the high points of my life, that, that job. So why do you think it was your favorite job? Like what, I mean, you said it was a great team. I mean, maybe more specifically, what made this job so great? I guess uh, it felt very fulfilling because you were helping people out quite a lot. You know, I had thousands of different people on on courses. You know, sometimes running fundraisers for charities that work through medium of climbing, like you know, people, you know, climbing clubs that work with kids with serious disabilities, um, you know, ki- kids with autism. You would you were doing stuff that you felt was making a bit of a difference. Then I'd have free places for people in rented accommodation, any sort of income support on these courses. That, so that um, there was a pathway for people from poorer backgrounds. Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of the admin for Black Dog Outdoors that did like um, uh, Andy Higson set it up and they do guided walks for people with um, aimed at people with a mental health condition. Uh, and they have that mental health first aider in the groups. Just quite a wide variety, quite positive work. Uh, and I th- and also the team, like I say, Hannah was a, a really good friend and drinking partner. She gave me a lot of counselling. Like I say, when I when I broke up with my long term partner Sophie, I was on my ass, <laughs> like really, see seriously on my ass, just mentally, just that you know when you become a person that you didn't believe you you could be because you've generally been, you know, the odd bit of depression, but yeah, you're always kind of um, within yourself, so to speak. You know, you're always steady. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, for the year after that, I was highly unsteady, uh, you know, like doing the odd dangerous, <laughs> very dangerous thing, you know, just. Um, what do you mean dangerous thing? Well, there's more dangerous things in life than you can do within climbing. Just, mm. you know, I guess um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, do, I literally, I don't want to go into the exact detail. Sure. But, say, ima- but imagine yeah. dangerous things that you can do within life that sure. you may regret. Those kind of things. <laughs> I didn't kill anyone. <laughs> no, okay, good. But like, uh, but you can you can rest assured that you know it was just uh, it, you can rest assured I was a very lost person in 2018. Yeah. Um, and it just uh, yeah. But you found it helpful to work with those who in your mind or maybe anyone's mind are underserved, right? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it, like I say, that, that, I mean, the work was what, what kept me together. You know, the work was still, you know, I still had plenty of interesting work to keep me involved. The work kept me steady within that year, I would have said. And is that kind of concept what led you to this book you've written? Mm. Yeah, what so, was the inspiration there? All right, so the inspiration, well, so when I split up from this long-term relationship, I wrote various things out. Uh, you know, like principles for life, you know, be more environmentally aware, cut down alcohol, cut down fags, you know, uh, or, and then, and I said, write two chapters about sci-fi, but I, yeah, so three or four years later, I'd not written a word. Um, and then I, I was at a friend's wedding last year, Helen Clear's wedding on Fakwin, and a random guy I hardly know, Jez, I, I said to him, I'm thinking about leaving the BMC, but I'm a bit lost about what to do. And he said, he'd re- read some of my stuff and that I should write a book. And I thought, sod it, I will. So I Googled how to write a book and wrote out five synopsis. And the fifth synopsis grabbed me because, uh, you know, so around austerity. And I knew I could pour a shit ton of energy into it because I've had, I had a family member, uh, you know, who I, who I do love. And they, they were in trouble financially. And, and George Osborne and David Cameron, you these people with a vast wealth who, who brought austerity into the world, you know, into the UK big time in 2010. That did have very severe effects on the National Health Service. You know, when they they, they stopped training nurses in in 2011, or stopped the bursary scheme for new nurses in 2011, uh, and as well as on services that are relied upon by by poorer people, they they kind of stuffed them. And these people with vast wealth in offshore accounts. I looked at the synopsis I'd written, and and God knows how they got the Morrigan, the dark goddess of fate, war, death, and ravens. I don't know exactly where that came into, but but I just the synopsis grabbed me. And, you know, when you start scrolling it out and I thought, I, I can pour a shit ton of energy into this. And, and I did. And it all, all, all started to fall into place, you know, really fast in terms of the, um, like I said, in a few months, I had the first draft ready. So give me a title of this book. It, am I pronouncing it right? Ellery? Ellery, yes. That's a Ellery. Welsh name. Okay. And this is fiction, right? It's a fictional account. It is a fictional account, but the first, a lot of the stories from the first two thirds of the book are from real life events in my life. And I only realized that a few months after it had come out in print. That <laughs> I thought, fuck, a lot of this shit actually happened. <laughs> I mean, obviously at the end, then it goes get more fantastical. But yeah, Larry is a Welsh name. And, and let's say it's both homage to North Wales, to the community that I love and the landscapes that I love. And also, you know, poured a lot of scorn and hatred for the political class that, that has been... Um, that has brought you know brought the UK into poor standing in the last last decade or more. Um, did you always have this interest in politics? Where did that come from? No, so I mean I was very apolitical. I would have said, you know, my dad said not to bother voting that they're all the same. You know, he's just dad wasn't asked. But um, <laughs> I guess it's it, it's not something I ever give any thought until 2016. So during 2016, the Brexit vote. So mm-hmm. a friend a friend actually uh, did a new Boulder problem called the Romaniac which is named after me. And it'd be just because 
I thought it was an extremely bad idea, the, the Brexit vote and leaving Europe. You know, Europe was set up, um, you know, after World War Two, basically to stop a, you know, to help reduce the possibility of everyone going to fucking war again, as well as the kind of the, the, the trading stuff and being able to, you know, move about and work freely. So I thought mm-hmm. it was an incredibly bad idea. And but also, so the Brexit vote happened and, and I started to look at the politicians and I'd always presumed politicians would be kind of straight A people who do who excel and everything. And then I, I started looking at them, these representatives from different areas and what they were saying. And I thought, oh, my God, these people are fucking thicker than I am. Do you know what I mean? Literally, you know, when you hear somebody talking and you think they're just they're dense, they're often dense and unprincipled, some of these politicians. Mm-hmm. So I started looking about and also saw UKIP, so that's the United Kingdom um, Independence Party. So Nigel Farage, who was high on my black bus li- book list, big supporter <laughs> of Donald Trump. So this guy's been talking about a black book list. I started looking, I think, fuck, people are taking these dickheads seriously. So I started hounding them on social media, on Twitter. So it, Nigel Farage used to be head of it, and it was a guy called Paul Nuttall, and I started hounding him twice a day on Twitter. Oh, I, I made a point of hounding them uh, twice that a day. That must have been healthy. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, just, <laughs> so, yeah. so I guess the end of 2016, and when, when Trump got in, I just thought it was in, insane. And um, so then I, I guess, yeah, I have become a bit more politically aware of what's going on. And, you know, we've had a bad time of it. Like, you know, it's... Um, so we had you know, we had Brexit, which was a poor idea. I think that's fair to say. We had Boris Johnson, who was a, a profound liar, and then we had Liz Truss, who thought to give the top thousand richest people in the UK a tax cut and did loads of unfunded tax stuff that the IMF and that the world just looked on with disgust, and that that helped increase everyone's mortgages and rents. She didn't last long. In no. power. <laughs> yeah, and no, she was only in power for like a month. You know, and she managed to stuff everyone. So, you know, because she was listening to this far right think tank in 55 Clifton Street. So we've had some profound idiots. And that's that's off the back of 10 years of austerity, which was brought in by um, David Cameron and George Osborne. And like I say, within that book, there's a uh, there's a film uh, called Laun- Laundromat. And um, and and they get shown in that movie. So it's got Meryl Streep, Antonio Banderas and um just showing about how corrupt these offshore accounts are. And they've got, got vast wealth stored in that. It shows George Osborne, it shows Theresa May, David Cameron, and but, and they've been stripping services relied upon by the poor because they can afford, they don't need these services. They can afford private healthcare. Whereas, you know, these services that are getting, you know, the, the health service, which has fantastic workers in it and has been strummed by these people. So I, I found... I find it just absolutely disgusting, you know, some of these elements, some of these politicians from the last few years, you know, I I think some of them deserve jail time for sure. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this offline because, you know, taking the devil's advocate approach, someone could say, Hey, you know, like say what you will about these politicians. Sure. They live separate lives. Sure. They have offshore accounts and considerable wealth, but they're making everyone's life better, you know, and we could pull up some statistics according to microtrends or macro trends rather, the UK poverty rate has fallen since the late 1960s and is more or less flatlined and remained at a relatively low level since the 1990s. Uh, Statistica, household disposable income has risen consistently since the late 1970s and as of 2022 is at all-time highs. And then finally, according to the UK Office of National Statistics, wealth inequality in the UK has remained stable for the last 14 years. So, 
given these stats above, you know, so why are you still dissatisfied with these recent politicians? You know, what, if anything, is missed when we just look at these numbers? Okay, so yeah, the, the numbers, the ONS stuff is good stuff. I'll quote Gordon Brown here. So Gordon Brown is, uh, is an eminent economist, and he was prime minister of Great Britain in um, 2010. So this is one of his quotes. He said the chancellor, I think he was on about, um, I can't even remember what the chancellor is, should be seeing that poverty is becoming so entrenched that mental illness is rising, Victorian diseases like malnutrition returning, life expectancy falling, mm. and parents are facing decisions on whether their children go without food, heating, or being clean. More than 3 million ad- young UK adults are now in hygiene poverty. Three in 10 girls say they cannot afford period products. So the cost of living is having um, you know, a serious, uh, serious effects on a, a vast amount of... Um, amount of people and here as poverty increased in the uk since 2010 25 years ago a third of children lived in poverty this fell to 28 percent in 2004 or 5 and reached lowest level of 27 percent between 2010 and 2011 uh but it's been rising and reached 31 percent in 2019 2020 that's since the austerity so um so there is some serious stuff and also social mobility i said the ifs institute for fiscal studies said social mobility has been the worst it has for 50 years within the UK. You know, basically, if you're from a poor background, you're more than likely going to stay that way. And that generational gift from old people, so wealth, you know, if you're from a wealthy background, sure. then it, that's more relied upon for household, you know, pass me down from older generations. That is very true. And so do you think that's why you've gravitated towards your sympathies there? I mean, you have that background, your, of, of course, yourself. As you said, so do you, is that why your sympathies lie for that kind of? Yeah, I do sympathise with people who are poor and people who are, could become become destitute. And and like I say, I guess you know within the equity steering group. So this is the um, you know the 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 group at the BMC. I'm going to guide mm. BMC around matters of equity. It's generally underrepresented groups of people with disability, women, uh, people with mental health condition, and people from ethnic minorities. They're more likely to yeah. be poor yeah. as well. Uh, but I have a good understanding about what it is to be fucking poor, you know, and to just be, you know, not have anything in your fridge and being a bit embarrassed about that and, you know, being on your ass and just, you know, maybe having a packet of Rollies and nothing else in your life. You know what I mean? Like uh, being on a train station, just like wondering, wondering what you're going to do because you haven't, you haven't, any, you know, you've next to no backup. And, you know, and I'm fortunate nowadays, you know, I've, I've You've know, got a little bit of savings. I've, I'm fucking. You know, I've got a mortgage and a house, but I'm fr- from a background where I, I know quite well what it is like to be to be pretty poor, and what it where you could end up on the street very easy. So that is a big part of what's influenced you in writing this book, correct? It is correct. Yeah, and like I say, a, a family member was struggling. So the effects of these very affluent people pushing austerity and de- destroying public services, I've. I I can pump a lot of hate into these people. I, I detest these people. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and um, so so yeah. So that you know, as well as homage to North Wales, and and some story, you know, I guess background stories from some of my life. Then um, it is it, it you know it is my contempt for these people thrown in there. Like I say, there's a chapter called the Pig Kings. And part of it's a kind of conversation between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, who brought a very divisive, hateful politics to the UK 
that I was also disgusted by. Um, yeah, but like I say, it's partly scorn and hatred. And also, how I'd like this this form of politics and inequity to end, <laughs> obviously in a rather fantastical style. Sure. Well, yeah, take me through that a little bit. Like, what is the narrative here? How, what is the fictional kind of arc to this story? Uh, so I guess, let's say, so I, I set it in Wales because Denny Ollen, so that's a small village, which I have lived in near where I live. That's an, it was a, a very poor area. You know, when it when the quarries, the slate quarries shut in 69, it went from having loads of shops and pubs to having, you know, the usual post-industrial problems, social problems, you know, you know poor drugs problems and um maybe less social cohesion in some ways but anyway it was objective one area when it was in europe it had money pumped into it because it was so poor and um so it, it follows alary's life she's brought up in this uh a family in dineol and and um yeah basically she loses a key family member to suicide so it tracks her family through the 90s and then the financial uh, the financial crash the banking crisis in 2008 that occurs and a few years later the cuts came in so a family member of hers works in a local education authority, which incidentally, these in real life, these have pretty much all shut down because of cuts. So less outdoor opportunities for young people because it's a need rather than a want, as a, a lot of government officials would see it. And um, But they lose the job. And Larry blames the people who pushed austerity. You know, these people, she watches stuff like laundromat and takes aim at them. And also, so near Clamberis, there's, there's an old bunker where we used to hold some other raves and it used to store world war ii munitions so <laughs> so larry accesses his world war ii munitions and it's, it's got a going the slate quarries are quite prevalent you know it's got a climbing little bit in the slate quarries she starts losing it with hatred and it's got a soloing a, an e5 a 512a called central sadness which is as hard as a larry can climb and uh and it's got to just having to pull it you know she she kind of really angry she's got to carry out this anger She's going to fucking solo this rook for gutted about a family member dying and she loses it. You know, the anger wears off when she's fucking high up on the last crux and she's just there sweating, having to sort it out. And you know, when that kind of panic can set in when you're on a, you know, just a fantastically dangerous position. So that, that, that was my editor's favorite chapter, in fact. Um, and that, but then it's got a testing some of the munitions, um, mm. in the, in the slate quarries so testing the, uh, the pineapple grenades, the M40 grenades or whatever, you know, and test them to make sure that they just go off in four seconds. And then it's got a using a bus, it's a number 85 bus. So you mentioned about on um, the questions you sent me about the cover. So I got the covers, um, a, you know, a view of a Larry stood beneath a rock climb called um, Looning the Tube, looking out through the slate quarries with the ravens um, nearby. So Maisie Lovett did that. She's a fantastic local artist and another cool local woman sophia larry did the editing on the book so that that's that's roughly and let's say with the bus she goes down and, and she's also got a friend penny who is in a wheelchair and has to, has had to start to use a food bank because the change is made to her benefits and it's about the shame she feels by having to use the food bank and like i mentioned um mm. you know in 2010 there were only 35 food banks in the uk nowadays there's 1600 yeah they are you know i mean a lot of people having to use and even people with reasonable jobs having to use these things. So, yeah, you know, I find it really interesting that not a lot of high-level climbers go and write books. And if they do, it's usually this kind of, I don't know, um, more like autobiographical account or a memoir of their life in climbing. 
And this book isn't a climbing book at all. I mean, it does have references to climbing, but it's fair to say this book is not about climbing. It's a fictional narrative completely about other things. Yeah, no, it's a social, it's a book about, um, I get, I, like I say, it's homage to North Wales. It's a little bit about the party scene. And it's, um, but it's a bit like a Ken Loach movie. I, Daniel Blake, or Sorry We Missed You. You know, it's about social inequality uh, and political corruption. So do you see yourself kind of going in this direction? Do you want to be a fiction writer? Or is this just something you just felt the need to do once and you're like, no thanks, I'm done with this? No, I mean, I'd love to write another book. Um, I, I've had the synops- a synopsis on a second one, a climate change fiction one. I've had it up on my wall for five months, but I, I haven't had the same. <laughs> I don't know if it's because I've been busy doing a lot of physical kind of guiding work and stuff, but I haven't managed to uh, pull it together into a kind of, how would you call it, like a force of your mind where you, where you can pile into it day in, day out. But I, I'm kind of hoping that I can do because climate change outside a nuclear war climate change is uh just one of the key um an- anxieties for the younger generation that they they will gonna they are gonna have to deal with and I, i'd like to bring a book which is kind of semi-humorous um but which focuses um, you know that can focus people's minds on how serious it is as well so it'll be set in the future and like, it's going to be Grace's climate diaries and she's going to be facing the commune in the 2030s, you know, and sea levels have risen and the shit hits the fan and I'll have various people on this commune, like maybe an ex, ex-CEO of a fossil fuel company. I'll have somebody called Elon there who's, uh, you know, <laughs> who may, he'll have arrived there because he's, you know, like he had some safe, safe haven, but it had gone moldy, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so I'll have these dickheads and I'll, I'll have some climate immigrants and, um in there and then it'll become a murder mystery later on as she pieces the climate histories together around realization the excesses the denialism the protests that sort of thing then um, there's going to be- become a bit of a murder mystery in there so yeah that'll be uh hopefully a second book but I-, I do need to get on the case with it so you do have plans for another now tell me um i guess what was the process like i mean how long did you work on this was this just did you just have this fury and you just banged it out in a month or it took, took nine months from start okay. to getting it in print. So yeah, it's my baby. <laughs> did you always feel like you had this just like thing you had to get off your chest or did you have to kind of show up and, you know, be a craftsman? What was that like? Uh, no, I mean, like, like I say, basically originally I was thinking about writing a sci-fi, but I, I just, I think early this year, I, no, earlier last year, I read, um, what the hell is it called? Oh, Solaris. So I read this outstanding sci-fi. A friend had sent me it. He was a fellow of the Royal Society, in fact, an uh, old-school climber called Craig Smith who put up a lot of hard roots in North Wales back in the day. But he sent me it and I read it, and it was just such an unbelievably good book. I just thought, I, I can't write anything like this. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it, just the science behind it. It was just, I found it, I found it a phenomenal book. But I thought on the human kind of, on the human level, I thought, and that austerity around inequality. Well, I have a background of work around inequality. I've got, and obviously I'm from a poor background, so I know what it is to be poor. And um, and I know some of the issues around it and, and also disgusted at the kind of current politicians. But I've also kept my hand in, uh, certainly reading the news around politics the last few years and have quite strong views of, uh, on it around the tax system. So I thought I could pile all this into a book and it was fantastic 
cathartic you know and and also let's say the book's been a massive success already in my mind let's say the uptake from the climbing community and um under the randoms around has been phenomenal uh, so it was much more successful than i ever envisaged it being as well and you just decided to self-publish you didn't try going through the traditional publishing route correct I, I did. I, I self-published. To be fair, I didn't know anything about publishing. And I was concerned that it would be controversial, maybe because, you know, because, because you know, I'm suggesting that people get blown up in there effectively. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I thought maybe maybe this uh, algorithm that, that Ed checks on Amazon or whatever might not let me publish it. But it did publish it. And, and you mentioned your questions about feedback. So it was a fantastic process at the end, actually. So my sister obviously said she loved it, which was great for confidence. And I got Dan McManus. He was a climbing friend, but he's super anal, like PhD doctor boff. And I knew, he, he messaged me wanting a, wanting a copy of the first draft. I thought, great. And I knew he'd be cutting as hell. And it, we had fantastic arguments and discussions about, you know, he, he didn't like the ending. So, you know, we had this, discussions about the ending, about who lived, about who died, about chapter about the pig kings he wanted it taken out but i kept it in and shortened it and it was you know when i published it it was somebody else's favorite chapter the pig kings um and then you know then i chatted with bransby um you know a month or two later after he finished it he's my he's one of my best friends ben fine with him since the late 90s and something clicked in my head after i talked with him and he made me give an ending that i was happy with i hadn't been happy with the ending until i chatted with him and I, you know, at the end of the day, I just wanted to make friends laugh. And I, I thought, right, this is an ending, which will make, give friends a bit of a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have to leave that yeah. to the reader. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, I find it interesting. You're, you're an interesting de- guest for me for a lot of reasons, right? Um, number one, we often talk on this podcast about money, but you obviously have a very different viewpoint about all of this. You come from a different background you've lived a different life. I mean, everything about you is in a way kind of contradictory to the things I write about here, which is I talk about building wealth because I think it's a powerful thing, but I also don't talk about building riches. I don't talk about, you know, uh, material wealth. I don't talk about getting yourself in some position of power to lord it over other people. That's not of any interest to me, but it's more about, um, first stability and then second, the freedom to choose the life you want to live. And so I have to give credit where it's due. Our, our kind of mutual pen pal, Jane, uh, I'll leave it at that. You know, she met you out in Wales and, and, and she's been writing to me off and on uh, for quite a while now because she also discovered this podcast and just thought we would make a really good int- uh, conversation. And she is right. Um, but she's in a position in her own career. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but anyway. But she's also kind of trying to balance that idea of uh, what what is enough and what is um when do you just keep working and so first of all what do you kind of think of this whole idea of financial freedom and then second to that if you had it and i know maybe you're not anywhere near it what would you do differently would you still work how would that what would you think about that that's a good question yeah i mean uh, basically i guess i guess related back to climbing you know climbing climbing means a lot to me and when i've been most financially secure <laughs> when i've climbed at my best Mm, okay. Um, because you know, because yeah, I think you, you've got less on your mind, and and I get that feeling. Same with chatting with friends over the years. You know, when they've been a bit insecure about what they're doing for work or where how they're going to pay the next bill, then they've they've generally been less able to focus on climbing and on enjoying life. True. So I, th- I think being, um, I think having a level of savings and maybe a bit of a financial plan 
um, is important. But be, beyond that, then, you know, I think it's important to have some sort of um, some sort of meaning in your, you know, some sort of cause mm-hmm. <laughs> in yes. your life that you're keen. And, and for me, like I say, you know, with the job at the BMC, it was great because I, I felt like I was helping people. I was giving opportunities to people. I was showing, you know, climbing and walking are great. They have massive health and uh, employment opportunity benefits through, you know, if you have a, an interest in them. They've given me the, the greatest time of my life. By me, you know, helping to helping to give these opportunities to people made made me feel good about it. Um, so yeah, I think it is is a bit of a balance. And like I say, I, I think I think have it. I would work a bit. So I wouldn't work particularly. You know, if I if I had full financial in, independence, I certainly wouldn't work because nobody's on the deathbed. Uh, you know, they've they've got the five five um, wishes of the dead and. No, nobody's on the deathbed wishing they worked more. True, that <laughs> is true. Day. But I, w- I would do work uh, for for a lot of charities. So you know, like uh, climbing for all in Sheffield. You know, they work with um, you know, kid kids who have various disabilities. They get, get them climbing. They do great work. Bendrigs the same in um, in the Lake District. So I think uh, th- there's a lot of opportunities for doing really positive work where you're having a positive impact on on other people's lives. And I, th- I think that's that would be um that would help give give me my life meaning and obviously other people have other causes that they'd be interested in but i I think um i think having causes like that can add a lot to people's lives yeah i mean it seems to have for you i mean you've always been obviously a very serious climber but it seems like you look back quite favorably at those seven years over the bmc and you feel like that maybe your life had more richness then than maybe just climbing alone. Is that fair? No, it was it was very fair. Let's say I just um, yeah, it, it was a job. I, I came in at myself in the job, and you know, as res- you know, when you're respected in the job, that people think they do a good job, and the events all, uh, ran always got good feedback, um, and I I felt I had a good handle on on lots of elements around equity and youth within the BMC. Now, I know you're not a future planner. You already said you don't think five years out, so maybe this is an unfair question. <laughs> um, I mean, looking at where your life is today, if you were to think whatever number of years in the future, what would you like to change that would make your life feel more meaningful tomorrow? Okay, so yeah, I mean, I, I, do, have, I do have plans. I say I don't look five years ahead, but I do. There are aspirations. So uh, basically, I, I'm going to upskill a bit this winter. So, I mean, I've, I've done a digital marketing and e-commerce course, partly to help me pimp out my new book because I have no idea about bidding strategies on keywords. And um, uh, but I might do one on uh, on coding. Uh, so I, I like working from home, um, and I'm also I'm keen on becoming fluent in Welsh if poss- if that's possible for my rather aged brain. <laughs> so I've I've done you know, thousands and thousands. Yeah, I've done many many hours on Duolingo. Yeah, for the last uh, two years, but I'll I'll get a tutor soon. Is that just an interest, or is there a practical reason for that? Uh, it's both, I guess. You know, it, it does. It would increase employment opportunities around here, but partly I just I love Wales and I feel part of the woodwork now, and it's been a real privilege mm. to try and learn language. I can read a lot of it and ask for basic stuff, but I'd I'd love to become fluent in it. It would be, um, you know, settle me into my retirement. <laughs> Not that I'm going to retire anytime soon. I'll be working forever, but um yeah th- those 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 types of things and for me i mean i so i had a bit of depression i had a really powerful short depression early in this year 
Mm. Um, and I wrote about who I wanted to be. So in five years, and, and top of the list, I put to be kind. Mm. <laughs> which was funny because you know a lot of friends would laugh at that because i've got one of the most seriously horrible dark humors <laughs> <laughs> you know like you've saw that that blog that i wrote that decimated. yeah 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 I, like kindness uh, didn't come streaming across in my exactly, mind but, yeah i mean um yeah. but yeah you're kind dependable positive because i mean i've been quite a negative person you know um a bit more reflective and grateful you know because the fact is I've got some fucking great friends. I'm very lucky. You know, I've got some great friends. I was out with Emma Twyford today. He was one of the best of her friends. And, you know, Ryan Pascal. Just, yeah, I've got a lot of great friends. I need I mean, to that's uh, huge. be more grateful. Yeah, you've got good friends in your life. You've you know, got people like you and Jane, you know, cool people who I hardly know, but, I've, you know, have shown an interest. Sure. Crack. So, yeah, that's where I want to be in uh, in five years' time. I'd like to be a little bit kinder, kinder humoured than uh, than the person I am now. Maybe still in the still running the odd party. Okay, the friendly party guy. The friendly party guy. No, I like that. That's a great answer. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about the book specifically? Anything else we haven't covered? And not really. I, mean, I, I guess I'd say a shout out to Alex Messenger and Pete Burnside. So they they put a. Um, an article in the summit magazine and that was very high risk for them so they're they still work at the bmc but when i left the bmc i left because i didn't like the ceo because he didn't give a shit about staff on lower pay and give me a verbal warning for chasing differences in staff pay with directors and he didn't like that and i and I, I sent a bomb email uh, that i blind copied the equity steering group and the staff into uh, that that decimated this ceo and um and another senior member of the team who had who'd been behaving very poorly um, and they they put they put an article in the BMC Summit magazine that that would have got that did get them into trouble uh, that pimped out the book. So uh, I'd like to thank them and Cheryl Law who give it a rave review. That like this random musician on Twitter uh, mm. after okay. she read it. Yeah, so that's it for the book. Yeah, well maybe um, we can get a link to wherever you're selling it on your website. You, do you sell it on Amazon as well? I do, yeah. Set okay. Up yeah, I'll get a link in the show notes so people can not have to look far to find it and we'll get anything else we've talked about there. Um, anything else before we move into this final question here? No, go for it. No, that's, okay. that's all good. It's my normal can question. What are your three favorite books? Okay, Eon by Greg Bear. Okay. Uh, and Interstellar was based on that, incidentally. I think Humankind by Rutger Bregman, uh, which gives a much positive, more outlook on human beings. And I'll go for The God of Small Things by Arundh Hattie Roy, uh, just because it's a fantastic book about human tragedy. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I the World by Robert Jordan, I've got to say, is a fantastic book as well, but I can't before. I've got to cut him out. I've read it too many times. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it on the list anyway. We'll, we'll slip <laughs> in the fourth. Cheers. People always find a way to slip in four. Yeah. People keep telling me, don't limit them. Let them say more books. And I'm like, that's <laughs> fine, but I got to make all the links. So I can't have too many. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for being here. Uh, no, you I, prefer to go by calf though, right? You don't like being yeah, James. Totally, yeah. And thank you for your time, Chad, and for the, the crack and for your, for your interest and amazing questions. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading, various articles as it relates to personal finance or life, sometimes some music, sometimes not. 
a little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor. And so you can get that there each week. Head on over, put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.